We, we are continuing our look at the book of Galatians. This is an extremely practical book. It is a very tense book at times, and it's a book that we need to embrace and understand. Uh, but before we go, we're going to have a word of prayer. And if there are people in your life that you're concerned about, would you call their names out now? Man's family. Let's go to our Father. Heavenly Father, we worship you as the creator, the sustainer of the universe. You not only give us life, you give us a reason to live. And Lord Jesus, we worship you, our Savior, Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, we worship you as the sanctifier of the people of God. So we give glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may live this day in your presence, that we will please you more and more as we become aware of that presence. Lord Jesus, we pray that this day we may be willing to take up the cross and follow you to the very end. And Holy Spirit, we pray that this day you will fill us with yourself and you will cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Blessed and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, today have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, your compassion was always aroused by the side of human suffering, and so we bring to you the suffering world today, those we've called out names, uh, the sick in mind and body, those who are bereaved, those who are at the point of dying, Victims of war and violence, of winter storms and earthquake. We lift up the poor, the hungry, and the neglected. We pray for those who struggle with disabilities. And we pray for people who are in, imprisoned and tortured for their own convictions. Father God, those who are in deep despair or depression, who are in darkness, let your light shine into their darkness. And I pray that you will raise up good Samaritans who will come to their aid. Reveal yourself to them that they may put their trust in you. And give them the confidence that as you entered your glory through suffering, so their sufferings will be eclipsed by the glory which is one day to be revealed. Now, most holy God, as we open your word, help us to open our hearts to your honor and praise. Through Christ. Literally decades ago, Gary S. Paxton released an album. Uh, that may, name may be familiar to you or not. Uh, when he was in the world, he was partially responsible for the Monster Mash. But he became a believer and released several albums. And one of my favorites, and it's not going to be hard for those of you who know me well, to know why I love this album just by its title. Terminally Weird But Godly Right. Uh, and there were a lot of beautiful songs out of that. But there was one song when I was a young man, I heard it, and it struck me as a little bit sad. But now, while it is not my song, I understand the song a little bit better today than I did 
when I was a teenager. Lord, how'd I get to be an old man so fast? And Lord, where'd these wrinkles come from? Lord, why, on yesterday I was marching in the high school band. Lord, Lord, why do my kids think I'm so dumb? Lord, now how did I get this out of touch? And oh, sweet Lord, where did I miss my mark? And oh, Lord, you know the stiffness in my body. How did I get this old? Have I been stumbling in the dark? Oh, Lord, you know all I meant to do was have a little fun. That's all, Lord. That's all, just a little bit. But Lord, I guess the years slipped right on by. My sweet Lord, you know I got a funny feeling coming all over me. And Lord, all I can do is sit and cry. My sweet Lord, if I could have a second time to try again, just one more, just one more, please, just one more, Lord. Lord, I promise I would try to stay more in touch with you. And my sweet Lord, maybe if you give me just a little bit more, just a little bit more time, oh my sweet Lord, maybe I could still make my life rhyme. Oh Lord, How did I get to be such an old man so fast? No, Lord, I guess I lived it all up, and now it's the past. means more to me than it used to. And all of us, I believe all of us, at some time or other in our lives, as we go through all the day-to-day struggles and pains and disappointments, we, we look And we beat ourselves up with what is. What if I had done this? What if I had done that? We we look at ourselves and we're wondering, how did the years slip away? We find ourselves thinking, where did I make a wrong turn? How did I miss the chance to do what you wanted me to do? And Lord, is there a possibility that somehow there might be a chance to make things right. Well, in today's text, the Apostle Paul is asking a question. How can it go so wrong so fast? But the difference between Paul and us when we go through our what is, he's not talking about himself. He's asking the question about a group of people that he genuinely loved. Now, even though Paul does come off hard, remember, this is a parent trying to spare their child a lot of pain. He loved these people. And as we look at our next leg in the journey through Galatians, Galatians 1, 6 through 10, I invite you to stand and I ask you to open up your ears really well and your hearts as we hear what Paul had to say to these people he was distressed about. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, Let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again. 
If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. God bless the reading of this world. You may be seated. In a text asking how things went so wrong in the church of Galatians, this text, the heart of it is, Paul wrote that all teachers bearing false gospels, false witnesses about Christ, were to be rejected thoroughly. No ifs, ands, or buts, no questions. If they've departed from the good news of Jesus Christ, do not listen to them. He says, it's a whole lot harsher, doesn't he? Now, in a world that is where everything seems to be going wrong, where it's beginning to look like up is down and right is left and all of those kind of things, many things that are wrong in this world, you and I have absolutely no control over. And we don't like that. We can't control it. But there's one thing we've got to get under control. We must not allow ourselves to fall victim to the many false teachers that are out there in the world today. And there are a lot, folks. There are a lot of people saying, thus saith the Lord, that have no connection to Christ. And it doesn't take long to figure that out as when you start looking at what they're really saying. In other words, I can put it, there are a whole lot of folks saying Jesus said 8 plus 8 is 15. We need to be careful. Now, how do we do that? How is it that we can have victory over this? Well, we've got to ask a question. What is it that allows false teachers to get a foothold among people who profess faith in Christ. Remember, these are his brothers and sisters. Paul acknowledges them as such in this book, but they have allowed people to seep in who are leading folks away. How does it happen? Well, there are several implications in our text today that will give us an idea how we can, even we can be deceived. So you ready? The very first implication by what Paul said, the very first thing we need to know is that some people will try to throw the church into confusion. There are people out there in the world whose main goal is to shake things up, usually to their profit, usually for some reason they have that we may not ever understand. But there are people out there in the world who will try to confuse you, to lead you astray, to get you uncertain of what you believe. And Paul Paul was very straightforward. Paul saw the false teachers as enemies of the faith with evil intent. He's not going to say, well, they're misguided. They just didn't understand. No, he's pointing out they are evil. Now, Last week we saw that very abrupt introduction that ends with a word of praise. Paul just thinking about God just bursts out to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now normally in one of Paul's letters, here's where we would expect, and I thank God for you. And I pray that you have a blessing from God on high. 
But instead of a blessing, what we receive in this text is an apostolic curse. Folks, that's huge. Now, we need to understand, he is not laying the curse at the feet of the Galatian Christians. His aim is true. He's pointed at these false teachers who are leading people astray, and he has the harshest of words he can say about them. They were the perverters of the gospel. They were the ones against whom he utters this incredibly strong term. You see, the teachers were claiming we have the truth. Everything Paul told you, ignore it. It didn't come from God. He made it up. He received it from another man. It isn't the truth. We saw Jesus when he was alive. We know what needs to happen, so you follow us. They weren't offering a difference of opinion. They weren't saying, well, Paul sees it this way, we see it this way. No, what they were offering was a change, a complete total change. They're still calling it a gospel, but it is the gospel of faith and works. And as far as Paul is concerned, there is no such gospel. There is only one gospel, salvation by grace through faith, bought, purchased, finished by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to to work to make it any better. We can't. And that Paul saw this action as evil. Folks, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? He says, anybody who tells you an untruth, anybody who leads you away from the gospel, let them be eternally condemned. The word in the Greek text is anathema. And it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul very most often quoted from, and Jesus even quoted from, the Septuagint. And it translates the word cherem. Now, that word means a devoted thing. Now, it's not like I'm devoting a tithe and offering plate today. It means to destroy something. When Israel is marching into Canaan to take it, to take possession, God tells them over and over again, destroy everything. Don't leave anything standing. The Canaanites were, were a sinful, ungodly people. They had had the witness of Abraham centuries before. They didn't listen then, and they're not listening now. And God said, you need to deal with them. Because if you don't, it's going to come back and harm you. Well, we know the story, don't we? They didn't deal with them, did they? And they fought issues of idolatry and ungodliness to the Babylonian captivity. So Paul was saying here, accursed. Someone has said, there's no English word that will quite catch the horror of this word. There's just not strong enough. Eternally condemned comes very close. But they said even that doesn't. So imagine the most abominable, sinful, hateful, awful thing you could think of that is so terribly sinful that it must be destroyed. And when it will be destroyed, God will be glorified. In the end, when God brings everything to a close, there will be a time of judgment. And while it is not my favorite topic to mention, 
The truth is, evil will ultimately be dealt with. And Paul says, anyone who tries to lead you astray. What does this mean for you and me? Down this wrong turn of false teachers who are going to confuse us. Those who attempt to change the truth of God's word are to be taken seriously. They're to be taken seriously. Now, I know this church to be a loving group of people. You have embraced me. You've embraced my family. You've, you've embraced each other. Uh, you have taken people under your wing. I, I know this to be a loving people. And I know there's a tendency nowadays in the world in which you and I live that we are so concerned about being considerate that we are silent, even in the face of lie. Rather than buck the system, Adolf Hitler is the one who made the expression, the greater the lie, the more people will believe it. And there is a mighty big lie going on in this world today. You don't need Jesus. And so the world tells us, how dare you say another religion is wrong? How dare you say somebody else's belief is not the truth? And so rather than get into an argument, rather than to hurt anybody's feelings, We simply write all of this off as a difference of opinion. But Paul says anathema, and it shocks us. Now, remember, this is not personal anger. This is Paul focused on the lies that are leading people away from Christ. And so please hear me carefully. I'm not asking you to go on a personal attack. Did you notice Paul did not name any names here? And he does that in a few other letters. He actually names the troublemakers. He's not dealing with that now. I'm not asking you to go online and create a channel, false teachers, under the microscope. I will tell you on YouTube right now, there are quite a few channels. The entire ministry is wrapped around naming and exposing false teachers. The problem with that is sometimes they forget to exalt Jesus. The problem with that, sometimes they determine a false teacher to be someone who's using the wrong translation of the Bible. I'm not asking you to go on that journey. I'm asking you to understand we cannot brush off the lie. You're reading a book by one of your favorite Christian authors, and the first time your eyebrow cocks and you think, that's strange. You begin to dig a little deeper. You're listening to a podcast you've listened to a thousand times, and all of a sudden something is off. We need to understand these are not differences of opinion. This isn't just a question of interpretation. If somebody tells you that Jesus died and was not raised from the dead, you don't need to listen to their teaching. If someone tells you that you can earn your way to heaven, By doing X, Y, and Z, don't listen. And sometimes even mourn. So what does this mean? That's the wrong turn. There are people who are going to try to confuse you. Well, what's the right turn? What do we have to do to be sure that we are anchored in the rock? Well, simply, we need to carefully examine what truths we let into our lives. And yes, the word truths is in quotation. Because all the false teachers out there are saying, I've got the truth. The church has been wrong for 2,000 years, and God gave me the truth that will set free. 
If the popular and famous preachers of our day seem to be veering away from the truth, we must acknowledge that. If a message seems off from the truth of God's word, we cannot ignore it. And we need to be ready to warn others. You and I need to be encouraging each other to be in the word, to study, to know, to learn. So we need to pay attention to everything that we know to be true in Christ. We need to pay pay attention to everything. And I know this sounds almost paranoid, but you know, remember the expression, you're not paranoid if they're out to get you? The false teachers are out to get us. The false teachers are out there. And they will lead us astray. And here I'm not talking about minor issues of doctrine. There are some people who worship on Saturday, and I'm not going to tear them apart. But when you start messing about the truth of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, we need to pay attention. And so our next wrong turn, we are easy prey if we lose sight of the truth. We are easy prey, easy pickings. If we don't know the truth, I was impressed with our kids. They knew what two plus two is. Didn't matter that Alan is an authority figure. They said with gusto, no. Well, folks, we need to be so solidly grounded in the faith that when someone comes up and says something that denies our Lord's saving work and what it means to be a child of God, we need to say no. When we see what happened with Paul, he was shocked. He was shocked at how quickly his readers were being deceived. Now, there's a lot of question about that. Uh, What does it mean you so soon? I I take the easiest understanding. I think Paul had established the churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. He went on to do other missions. And shortly after he left them, he felt on a solid footing, they're letting false teachers in. He was genuinely shocked. This idea means astonished, really and honestly shocked that this happened. They were off so quickly after they had first received the gospel, because Paul makes it clear these people received Christ. These people have been set free from the bondage of sin by Jesus Christ. And now he says, what's wrong? You're going back into bondage. Now, here he's not talking about bondage of horrible sin. He's saying you're going into bondage of rules and regulations, thinking that's what's going to save you. Don't you understand you're getting yourself in a different kind of chain, but it's still chains that will bind you and keep you from understanding all that God wants for you. How did it happen? How did you forget everything? How have you forgotten the freedom that you found in Christ, the life that you found in Christ, only to be thinking about, and in this case, when you look at the context of Galatians as a whole, You're talking about being circumcised. You're talking about following the law of Moses so you can become a Jew and then a Christian. How did it happen? Well, with us, I can pretty much tell you how it happens. 
not understanding what we believe and why is a precarious trap. We are about to trip the landmine. We are about to step in the bear trap. If you cannot articulate, these are the things I believe and these are the reasons I believe it, you're unprepared for what's out there. Now, it's not particularly surprising often when young believers fall astray, when they hear something, they're just excited about the Lord, so anybody who's talking about Jesus, they want to hear what they have to say. Um, And believe me, when God is moving, the enemy is going to work overtime to undo what's being done in the name of Christ. But I have a different group in mind. We are supposed to be helping the new babies and keep them on track. But what about the person who says, I've known the Lord for 40 years. I was baptized way back when I was just a little kid. And that's pretty much all they can tell you about their faith. What about those people who have claimed, I know the Lord and still can't tell you what they believe or why they believe it? Maybe they didn't have someone who would come alongside them. I was saved at the age of eight. My family, uh, for seven years, we moved every year almost. And it was like a hit and miss being in church. But when we found uh, our, our, our home church of Spring Lake Baptist, we found a group of people who took me under wing. And two people in particular had an impact in my, well, three. Brother David Blaze, the pastor, and then Gwen and Linda Farquhar, my youth workers. And all of a sudden, I knew what it meant to be discipled. If we're not taking people under wing, that's on our fault. And we are doing a poor service to Christians if we invite them to know the Lord and then leave them on their own. And at the risk of embarrassing folks, all of you that are in Miss Betty's class, I give you applause. This class has done more than I have ever seen any one group do in 40 years of ministry, 40 plus, of taking sometimes wounded, hurting, crying heart people who've been broken and loving them and showing them, actually following the admonition of the Lord because Paul writes that the older women in the church should take care of the younger. And you've done a great job. And I, I am, I'm proud to be your pastor. But the reality is there comes a point in time every one of us in this room has got to acknowledge I have a personal responsibility for my walk with Jesus. If I get led astray, I carry the weight. A couple years ago, I preached through the book of Philippians. Listen to what Paul told them. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
Now, this is not a contradiction. Paul isn't telling the Galatians, you don't work to get saved. And he's telling the Philippians, you do. No. What Paul is saying, you need to yield your lives into the hands of God. Did you notice what ex- that verse 13 explains? Verse 12, work out your own salvation for it is God who is working in you. Paul is saying, get in line with God. Open your heart to God. Take responsibility. And every one of us have that responsibility. I need to make sure that the Word of God is in my heart. And if I'm all alone and I don't have somebody to help me, well, I'm going to have to dig in, ask the Spirit to give me guidance, and I'm going to find somebody who can help me understand. We have a responsibility. And so what that means, instead of walking on a very dangerous path, where we will be tripped up and trapped. We constantly need to review and affirm the truths of our faith. There are times I I will be preaching on a passage of Scripture that you know really well. And as my eyes are getting better, it's going to be easier for me to see again. Uh, How do I put this gently? Uh, I'll look at the screen so nobody will think I'm talking to them. Uh, I'm, I'm preaching out of Psalm 23, and I can see brains shift into neutral. Because we know everything there is to know about Psalm 23, right? No. We need to be open to the Word of God, taking a look, becoming students of the Word of God, understanding what that word means to us and what it can mean to us, we need to know what a bunch of Arawana kids could say out loud and from memory. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I remember a very embarrassing moment in my life. I had just surrendered to preach. I was 15, getting ready to turn 16. And onto my door came a knock. And I opened the door, and there were a couple of folks from the Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't like to admit that I was rather full of myself at 15, but I was, and I knew... I'm going to set them straight. Within five minutes, I wasn't sure what my name was anymore. They just started hitting me with everything. I'm thinking, whoa, wait, what, 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 what? what? Uh, and, then, and so I, I ended the conversation with grace and dignity. I'm a Baptist. Slam the door. 30 minutes later, I realized they had misquoted a passage of Scripture. And that one misquote guided everything else they had to say. And I've learned that John knew what he was talking about. Someone comes to you bearing the false teaching. Don't let them into your home to teach you. Don't wish them a good day. Send them on their journey. Reality is, people who have 
lost their way or who have fallen to the lie are not going to be won by our arguments. We need to pray for them. We need to share with them when we can and ask God to break through the fog that we cannot. It's crucial that you and I become workers who know how to handle the word of truth. Absolutely crucial if we hope to move forward in this walk. So, there are people out there who are going to try to confuse us. And if we don't know the word, we're easy targets. So we come to our final implication. And this is a big one because it traps a lot of people. Desire for the spectacular can lead to spiritual danger. I want to hear something exciting. I want to hear something new. I want you to blow my socks off. I want you to just rattle. Let's hear the great, cool stuff. Well, how is Paul dealing with this new gospel? Well, Paul knew that the new gospel his readers were considering led to old errors. There was no other way around this. Paul knew this. For him, the issue was clear. These people who are coming and telling you You're not going to be saved by Jesus alone. You must first become a Jew and follow the the laws of Moses. And then when the time is right, you can receive the, the sacrifice that a Jewish Messiah gave for you. And he knew they were trying to lead the Christians and the churches of Galatia into a works based faith. The Word of God identifies these people as Judaizers. Folks who want to tell a Gentile you can't be a Christian without becoming one of us first. You must follow the law to receive salvation. In the third chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul says, I used to believe that. I was a Pharisee. No, nobody knew the law like I did. I was so far above my contemporaries. I knew things they didn't. I was a good Pharisee and I kept the law and I was righteous and I was good and I was holy. And then I realized I wasn't. Jesus Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. Paul finally understood. It doesn't matter how good I thought I was. It doesn't matter how well I knew the law, how well I kept the ceremony, how well I went through the motions of the law. I did not know God. Because working your way to God simply won't work. Now, we can't be certain why. You know, Paul, how did it happen? We don't know why it happened. Nothing is specifically stated. Why they even began listening to the teachers. You would think they would just say, no, that's okay. Paul told us what we need to know. No, they started listening. I have some suspicions. Maybe the problem is a problem people still have. The gospel that Paul was preaching was too easy. It's about grace. Folks, people don't like grace. We think we've got to do something to help it. I don't know how many times people have told me, well, if the good outweighs the bad, then I get to go to heaven. Well, folks, the good is never going to outweigh the bad. 
Because there's a problem. Even if you don't do an act of sin, what about your heart? What about your tongue that James says no one can tame? So perhaps they, a little human pride was coming up because, you know, Paul, you told us grace by faith. These people are saying, yeah, grace by faith, but we also have to work hard, and that makes more sense to me. Maybe the teachers were better speakers than Paul. Paul can write a mean letter, a tough letter, a wonderful, beautiful letter. But we have no recordings of his sermons. But we do know that in a couple places, Corinth, there seems to have been an issue that Paul didn't speak as well as some other teachers. Maybe that was what was going on. They're exciting to listen to, Paul. Maybe it was the promise of something different. And because of that, Paul issues a stern warning, as stern a warning as he possibly can. And I think the form this warning takes gives us what might have been at least part of the issue, that there may have been some sort of spectacular element involved. Did you hear that Paul said, in the first even if, he mentions even if, Without getting a great deal, that means even if, although we all know it's not going to happen, but even if I came to you, if we, if brothers and I come to you preaching a gospel that's different than what you've heard, or even if an angel shows up and tells you, don't listen to Paul, that's not the gospel. Did you hear what he said should happen? Eternally condemned. Folks, people have always been fascinated by angels. There have been books upon books upon books written about angels. And a lot of those books that have been written say a lot of things about angels that the Bible just doesn't. Because the Bible doesn't give us a great deal of detail. I have some friends who are fascinated with angels. I may have told you once before, a friend of mine said, oh, do you see that angel standing over your left shoulder? No. He says, you don't see the angel? No. You really don't see? He's guarding you. He's guarding you. You don't see the angel? And I said, look, if I see an angel, you'll know it. Because my face will be in the dirt. I'll be crying. I'll be certain I'm about to die. And the angel will have to say, don't be afraid. I don't even want to think that I could become casual about the angelic servants of the Lord. So maybe they were wanting something spectacular. Maybe they were wanting something that would wow them, something that made sense to them, something that appealed to their pride, something that met their desires. What does this have to do with us? Well, folks, itching ears syndrome leads to spiritual disaster. Itching ear syndrome leads to spiritual disaster. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul wrote to his son in the ministry, Timothy, something that we really should pay attention to. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them 
a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truths and turn aside to myths. I like the New American Bible's translation, uh, verse 3, when it talks about they to, to suit their own desires and insatiable curiosity. Don't tell me something that I've heard all my life. Tell me something different. Tell me something exciting. Glenn Henson. This is one of those quotes that I just wish I could claim as my own. Glenn Henson said, Novelty often has more followers than sanity. Give me something new and I'll jump on board. Give me something that is rational and makes sense. No, I'm not interested in that. But I want you to notice in that message to Timothy, Paul said, and these people are wanting their ears tickled, their itching ears. They're going to be able to find the teachers who will do just that. They're out there in drove. John Cleghorn has written, that's why the prosperity gospel is so popular. People like being told that God wants them to be rich and prosperous. It is easier to swallow than hearing that story about how Christ gave everything even his life for us, and that we are able to do the same in response. Folks, it is true. Jesus only told one man, the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it away. That's true. But the moment he told us, take up the cross and follow me daily, he was saying, you need to be ready to give it all up for me. Yes, the Bible doesn't condemn wealth, but it warns people about wanting to be rich. Paul's solution to this this problem was fairly clear. To first, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 2, right before 3 and 4, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. There are a lot of people out there. Right now there's a, a particularly... Uh, scary doctrine that's roaming around certain certain elements of the charismatic movement. Folks, I do not believe this is true of all charismatics. I, I, I am a firm believer. I'm not a cessationist. I believe whatever God has done in the past, he can do today. But there are groups of teachers who are now taking a verse out of Psalm 86 out of context, uh, taking the quote that Jesus made out of context, and the, the verse says, You are all gods. And the teaching is, we are little gods. And if we understood that, we would have so much power. In Psalm 86, the people who are told you are all gods, every one of you, were judges. And the word Elohim doesn't necessarily mean G-O-D with a capital G. They were responsible for meeting out the justice of God himself. They were God's spokesmen. You were speaking under my authority. Folks, there's just so much out there. So we need to have the word, and we need to be prepared. We need to, in season, out of season, we need to be ready to correct, rebuke, and encourage. For us, the right term. We need a clear commitment to careful instruction in the word. which means I've got to be ready to listen. I've got to be ready to learn. 
I've got to be willing to open my heart. You know some of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my walk as a Christian? Is take a look at some of the doctrines that I grew up believing. And I'm not talking about foundational truths of Christianity. These are secondary and third type issues. The things that I learned and I believed with everything in me because sister so-and-so taught it to me in Sunday school or brother so-and-so preached from the, the pulpit. And as I got into the Word and I read and I saw, I don't think I believe that idea anymore. And it's tough sometimes when someone... Some There's secondary issues, thankfully. But even secondary issues become important for us. So, we need to be ready to hear careful instruction. Which means we do need each other. We need each other. So if I start going off in a direction that may lead me to mistake, I've got a brother or sister who's willing, and, and, and I've got several brothers here at Bay Vista who will be more than happy to say, Danny, you need to rein it in. But this also means we need to be stand ready to give careful instruction. When we see a brother or sister embracing some things that they're better off leaving still, we need to have heart-to-heart talks with We need a clear commitment, not to just reading the Word of God, which I think is very important, but studying the Word of God. Because it's easy to get fooled. I want to share with you a little bit from Price Economics' blog. Uh, Alex Mesa did the blog. I'm not a chef, nor am I a son of a chef. But this absolutely grabbed my attention. Nothing boosts the prestige of a food or beverage like the perception that it is traditional, hand-picked, fresh, and otherwise limited in production. But in a world full of manipulative marketeers, Uh, The truffle is the real ideal. Uh, It's a type of fungus. And just reading about truffles makes me glad I don't have the money to buy truffles to eat. It is a type of fungus that grows on tree roots. A few truffle varieties are found in France, Spain, and surrounding areas are esteemed as a decadent addition to pasta and steaks. And these fickle cousins of mushrooms have proven impossible to mass produce. They are still dug up individually by dogs that track their scent. Admirers contend that the truffle begins to lose its flavor as soon as it is pulled from the ground, and fresh truffle season really only lasts a season. The rarity and temporality of truffles has made them the most expensive food in the world. Get ready and you will understand why truffles are not in my diet. In 2007, a Macau casino owner set a record by paying $330,000 for 
for a 3.3 pound truffle. It was found in Tuscany. Now, the combination of these two trends, the desire for a convenient, ever-ready supply of an ingredient, and a hunger for the traditional, the rare, and real food, led to what seems to be a remarkably successful scam on foodie culture. Truffle oil. But most truffle oil, and it is expensive, does not contain even trace amounts of truffle. It is olive oil mixed with 2,4-dithiopentane, a compound that makes up part of the smell of truffles and is associated with a laboratory, as Californian food is associated with local organic ingredients. Essentially, truffle oil is olive oil plus truffles disconcerting smell. And the description, if you were to look up this phrase and read what it sounds like, it smells like, I don't think any of us would be knocking down the door to get it. Despite truffle oil's poor source, though it has been used and praised by both average Joes and renowned chefs, truffle oil has been a remarkably successful con. It's not real. But people are willing to pay because it has the name. Folks, those who draw our attention away from the bedrock truth of God's word to a reworking of the gospel have pulled off a much more dangerous con, one that has been around since the first century church. So we must understand there are enemies to our faith trying to bring confusion to the church. We must be certain that we are not easy prey for those who are targeting the church and we must not seek the spectacular aspect of new and exciting ideas that run contrary to the Word of God. And so I ask you today, we have to seek out to remain true to God's revelation in Christ. We must become workers who can rightfully handle the Word of God.